Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Save the Nation on ADH-TV. I'm David Flint, and I'm delighted today to have as my guest Daniel Tang, who's a senior contributor on Epoch Times and uh, also a law graduate like myself, so we can talk in similar terms. Daniel is making a major contribution on Epoch Times. Epoch Times is one of the leading media organizations in the world today. As somebody was saying to me only the other day, it's like newspapers and the media once were. It goes out and uh, tries to tell the truth, which I think is a wonderful thing. In fact, if I may read something from 1851, it was the Times. The Times said in 1851, the first duty for the press is to obtain the earliest and most correct intelligence of the time, and by disclosing them, make them the property of the nation. In many ways, I think that reflects Epoch Times, which is there with newspapers in editions in a number of countries, and also other media, and particularly television. Uh, the, the topic today with Daniel is AUKUS, Beijing, and Keating. AUKUS, Beijing, and Keating. And I'd like to begin, if I may, Daniel, in uh, asking you what was your reaction to Mr. Keating's comments on AUKUS and on Beijing? Yes, thank you, David, for having me on your show and um, obviously organizing the time. I, I think what was a little bit interesting about Keating's speech was some of those talking points were very similar to what the Chinese foreign ministry has been saying uh, over the past few years in regarding in regards to AUKUS. Uh, some terms like some phrases like how we Australia might aggravate the situation in the Indo-Pacific, uh, you know, nuclear proliferation concerns. So a lot of Keating's speech tended to seem to echo some of what the Chinese foreign ministry was saying, as well as, in, interestingly enough, the Australian Greens. So that was quite surreal, uh, were my initial impressions, at least. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, and it reminds me very much of something he said at La Trobe University a few years ago. He was giving a lecture, and he ended the lecture with, I thought, the most extraordinary statements and he said that government of theirs referring to Beijing that government of theirs is the best government in the world in the last 30 years 
And I found that extraordinary that anybody could assess the Beijing regime as one of the best government or the best government in the world. When you consider that on every, on every reasonable report, the communist regime has been guilty for the deaths of something between 50 to 80 million people. That seems to be the general consensus of most responsible observers. The, the deaths of so many people during that long regime have been the result of that uh, government. And they haven't stopped there. We know that in relation to the Uyghurs, the Uyghurs are treated as slave labor. They're subject to what the United Nations would assume was genocidal rules. And in relation particularly to the Falun Gong, they are practicing a, a live trade in human parts. And that was well established by an independent tribunal in London, which went through all the evidence. And there seems to be no doubt that that is continuing today. These serious breaches of human rights law are being committed by this government. And here we have Mr. Keating treating it as the best government in the world in the last 30 years. I, I find this really extraordinary that anybody could be taking that position. Yeah, I think a lot of these analysis and there is especially you know, economists or business business um, business people, when they make a positive assessment of Beijing, it's always divorced from the human rights issues happening in China. And you can only really comfortably make that assessment about how, how good the Communist Party is if you put aside all the human rights issues happening and just conveniently omit it from any sort of discussion. And I, I think that's also a question on the state of foreign policy today. Like, can we actually have, should we be doing business with foreign regimes that are engaged in systematic human rights abuses? And it's it's well known now Beijing engages not just in any sort of human rights abuse, in quite extensive and sometimes quite chilling uh, human rights abuses, including organ harvesting. So Mr. Keating, I think, is just, He's not the only voice who, 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 who speaks about similar issues or has a similar approach to Beijing. There's a lot of people in Australia who say similar things. And generally, one of the key things they omit during their discussions is, just, is simply just the scale of the human rights issues happening in China. One of the other things which uh, Mr. Keating suggested was that uh, Beijing is an inoffensive regime internationally and doesn't engage in wars or anything like that. And I noticed this was reflected by another commentator, uh, somebody whom I respect, but he seemed to be suggesting that America is the one, the United States is the one who's been involved in wars, but uh, the suggestion was that essentially Beijing has been a very peaceful power. But I was going through all of the all of the things that they've done in relation to Xinjiang, uh, the Sino-Indian skirmishes, their skirmishes on a big scale, the Vietnam War, India, the Sino-Soviet dispute, the, the attacks over the Straits of Taiwan, and the takeover, the complete takeover of the South China Sea, uh, and the uh, militarization of uh, the, those islands in the, and artificial islands in the South China Sea, in contradiction of a promise made to President Obama not to militarize these. We have here a, a government, I think, which has a record 
of aggressive behaviour. Is that uh, is that your impression too? I, I think the the facts speak for themselves. Beijing has been engaging in uh, a, quite a substantive military build-up in the last few years, um, and not just invest, not just building man-made islands in the South China Sea, but also the issue in the Solomon Islands, uh, signing a security pact with uh, the Manasseh Sogavari, the prime minister of that that nation, and. You know, for what reason does uh, Manasseh Sogavari need to allow Chinese naval ships to be stationed in his country? Uh, we we don't quite know, but I think as well, it's a, it's a little bit of a straw man argument. The fact that oftentimes the counter argument is that well, look at the U.S. It's actively engaged in military conflicts around the world, and that in some way detracts from the issues happening in Beijing. Well, Beijing hasn't gone and militarized or sent. The soldiers to other countries, but I, does it really? Can that really whitewash all the other issues happening at the moment? The militarization in the South China Sea, the cybersecurity hacks happening around the world, of course, the human rights issues that I just mentioned earlier, but uh, as well as uh, now, essentially, its support for for Russia and Vladimir Putin uh, in the Ukraine war. So. Does the U.S.'s past actions really wash away what's happening with China? Yes. I think that's a question many people should probably think about. Yes, and uh, quite often the United States went in under treaty provisions. For example, it seems that uh, what they did in Vietnam was initially uh, in conformity with the treaty provision, whether one approves of that or not. But uh, it, you can go right back to soon after the formation of the regime in Beijing, that uh, the government was uh, engaging in military activities. For example, North Korea was flooded with vast numbers of so-called volunteers. They weren't volunteers. This was, this was the army being sent into North Korea during the Korean War, which in many ways had a tremendous impact on what was happening on the ground in Korea. There was no, no reserve in not using the army for that sort of purpose. Mm, absolutely. So if you look at the, the history of the Cold War and especially the proxy, when you when you talk about proxy, obviously fighting a war through another adversary, Beijing played quite a bit of um, quite a substantive role in a lot of conflicts in the region. I think the Sino-Vietnamese War is probably more of a, one of its more direct engagements, but also the Vietnam and Cambodian War. Uh, North Korea is probably a really good example as well. The, uh, the entry of AUKUS I think in many ways is a wonderful thing for Australia because it ties us to our two closest allies, in particular the United States, but in Europe the United Kingdom is obviously our, our biggest and strongest ally. And it is, I think, more relevant than ANZUS, mainly because New Zealand seems to be quite often taking a neutral approach to foreign affairs. But we need that tie, particularly with the United States. Yeah, well, AUKUS will effectively, I think, once fully implemented, it will tip the power balance in the um, in the region. And you can already see from Beijing's reaction that there is genuine concern from the Chinese Communist Party leadership that AUKUS will essentially create another buffer or a bulwark against its influence in the region. Uh, there are concerns around cost implementation, but I think 
well, I think now there, there really is not a lot of choice left for Australia. There's not a lot of other moves that the Australian government can do to really form a strong enough resistance to the Chinese Communist Party's influence in the region. And uh, the other day, I think somebody did mention to me this this very fact. You know, why why get into AUKUS? You know, um, you know, it's gonna is is it really worth the time and money? You know, and I just sort of said, you know, the, the the thinking you have actually aligns really closely with the Chinese Foreign Ministry. That's exactly what they're saying. They don't want Australia in AUKUS, and there's obviously reasons why they don't want Australia in AUKUS. It seems in many ways that the regime is applying the old tributary system, that they, they regard uh, communist China as the middle kingdom, middle between heaven and earth, and that other countries should be tributary powers paying tribute, allegiance to Beijing. And they see Australia, I would think, in this light. And they, I think that was demonstrated when uh, the then Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, quite properly, I think, asked for an international inquiry as to the origins of COVID. We knew it came from communist China, but uh, it was proper to inquire into how it started and to make sure that it, uh, if it were, for example, man-made, that it uh, should not happen again. That was a, a very reasonable argument. But the reaction of Beijing was appalling. They shredded the uh, the free trade agreement, and they imposed all sorts of heavy trading obligations. Those those things they didn't need, they didn't immediately need, like iron ore, they, they dispensed with by ridiculous tariffs and so on. And they decided that they would punish us for daring to make a reasonable proposal that there should be an international inquiry into the origins of COVID. I, I thought that was appalling. I wonder what you feel about that? Yeah, I think it also opened the world's eyes to the the nature of the Communist Party leadership. I think since the, it, China entered the WTO, there's been this hope that China can become the breadbasket of the world uh, and provide for the world and become a major trading nation. And at that time, uh, Western leaders were very keen to just put aside what they were already seeing at the time, which was that the regime behaves a certain way and has a certain approach. And for years, we kept that under wraps for about maybe 20 years. And I think COVID and the uh, the trade conversion campaign against Australia really opened it up and let the world see, wow, this is what the Chinese leadership is about. It's not just any government. It's there to use any tool that can when it needs to, if it feels like it's being offended or affronted. This means, does it not, that uh, they have a very low regard to treaty obligations, that a treaty will be shredded if it suits the current regime. And they did that in relation to the free trade agreement, did they not? Yeah, I think the way to look at it as well is the, the Chinese Communist Party does not place the same priority on treaties and contracts as Western governments do. And I think that's that is a learning curve the West has been going through. The, the Chinese leadership operates on a completely different axis to Western leaders. It sees, it sees treaties as merely a stepping stone to what they really want. And hence why over the last few years we've seen, especially around the South China Sea, you can see that they've, they've blatantly just ignored the international court's ruling on the South China Sea. 
Communist Party leadership doesn't place the same uh, sanctity around these agreements, and they merely see it as a, a speed bump to where they really want to get to. And I think that the term they use is called lawfare. Uh, Communist Party will use treaties in in their in their lawfare campaign. They essentially the idea of lawfare is how do you manipulate a legal system to your own advantage. You don't use the legal system and try to uphold it, which is the tradition in Western cultures. You merely look at it as a tool, and how can you manipulate it best for for, for your own advantage? The uh, it was the Philippines, was it not, who took that case to the court concerning the South China Sea, and uh, they they got a favourable decision. This now is completely forgotten. The media pay no attention to it. They do not draw attention to the fact that the regime is effectively a law-breaking regime. I had a uh, discussion with Rick Brown, who's an Australian political advisor, and he many years ago had been uh, commissioned by one of the unions to write a report on the negotiations between the then Labor government over the free trade agreement, which was eventually consummated, I think, by the Liberal government. But his argument, which I think was a very good argument, is available in a report in which he said, well, if you're not, if you can't get satisfaction on these points, for example, in relation that you're not, for example, dealing with uh, slave labor, that uh, reasonable uh, industrial standards are being followed and that uh, this treaty will be followed, what is the point of entering into a free trade agreement? We put a lot of effort into that free trade agreement it now seems to be completely worthless. Is that your view, Daniel? Uh, Australia is essentially starting from, from zero. Um, but I think the key thing as well is since the change in government, Beijing has changed its tone. Uh, it is essentially trying to, if you read the actual transcripts or the statements from the Communist Party leadership, it's essentially trying to cajole the Labour government into into a subtle embrace, you could say. They're trying to rebuild and normalise relations between Australia and China again because Beijing sees Labour as the in to getting back on the world stage, essentially. It's interesting, isn't it, uh, the way in which the Labour government, the Albanese government, has fully endorsed AUKUS, including the acquisition of the nuclear submarines. Do you find that interesting, uh, Daniel? Yeah. Yeah, there are different views on this. It's uh, I, th I think some former Labor MPs say that you know the the water is well and truly under the bridge. Uh, there is no turning back from AUKUS. Um, it's on the surface, it looks like the acquisition of you know three hundred and seventy billion dollars worth of submarines. Um, but beyond that, AUKUS actually ties together a range of defense partnerships and research in areas which are really cutting edge like artificial intelligence, cybersecurity and undersea capabilities. And when you're, you're looking, you, I think that's the best way to under, understand AUKUS. It's a, it, is, it stretches across Australian foreign policy, defense policy and, um, and, and our science and technology as well. So such a large agreement, I, I think, you know, at the, at the end of the day, whoever was in power, there was very little turning back against against that wave. And, um, you know, Beijing's certainly not pulling back in the immediate region. So any leader in place would see that they have to do something. Yes. And AUKUS was sort of the natural step. 
And uh, I think a bit of credit has to be given for the previous, uh, for the Morrison government, for the nuts and bolts of putting it together and um, all the internal lobbying that occurred between the UK and US governments. Uh, but for audiences, I think it's important to also look beyond the price tag of the nuclear submarines. There is actually a range of different partnerships that are really now being entrenched. Uh, and we have to appreciate the fact that Australia, UK and US are really at the cutting edge of technological development and Australia will be a beneficiary of that under this agreement. I had the feeling that uh, it was also very convenient or convenient may be the wrong word. It was appropriate for the present American administration because the president had come out of uh, Afghanistan with his reputation in tatters. I, I don't think uh, an American president has so speedily abandoned a country as the President Biden did in relation to Afghanistan. It was highly criticized over that. And we also came in at a time when the British, through Brexit, had effectively withdrawn from the closer links in Europe and uh, were much more, once again, more of a global power. And uh, I think uh, it, it, it came at a very convenient time for Australia in relation to those two uh, overseas governments. Is, is that your feeling too? Yeah, sometimes the stars need to align <laughs> um, for, for certain things to happen in the world, uh, especially in politics. Uh, nowadays, politics is so is so entrenched. Um, very little can, you know, it's very hard for leaders to get things done. Uh, and for AUKUS to be at least signed off is actually quite a testament to I guess, to the willpower of the parties involved, but also the, I guess, the circumstances that we find ourselves in now. Uh, there is still a lot of, there is still quite a bit of resistance to AUKUS, you can hear, uh, especially now in Australia, when a lot of Australians face concerns around inflation, uh, interest rate rises, cost of living pressures. Some of them are looking at AUKUS and thinking, well, why are we spending $370 billion on those things when, you know, the country is suffering and, and, and small businesses are, are suffering as well. Um, so it, it is a hard thing to pull off and credit to those who have actually put the effort in and the determination in to make it happen. One of the uh, interesting things I thought well before the acquisition of the submarines is the fact that we're effectively going to have them based in Western Australia. There will be American and British submarines based there I think that reinforces our defence and is reasonably economical from our point of view to have to have uh, the submarines of our friends there. In fact, uh, if, if the United Kingdom were to break up, if Scotland were to become separate, or I don't think it's going to happen, but they, then the British would also have to find some way to put their nuclear fleet. So they may, they may even think of bringing some of the fleet to Australia. But I think having the fleet, yeah. having them present within the, within the country, is, it is a good thing for Australia. Well, those are some very expensive parking lots, David. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there, um, I, I think from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party leadership, I can say that they are terrified and actually very wary of AUKUS. So I think listeners can take that into account. You know, why is AUKUS something they fear or something they're genuinely afraid of? And why did they make so much noise in opposition of it? I think sometimes when we discuss AUKUS, we look, we look too much at 
our own flaws in how we can implement it. I'm, I'm speaking from the Australian perspective. We are like, well, Australia, we don't have the people for it. We don't have the timelines. We don't have the money. But look at the reaction from the Chinese Communist Party. They fear it for a specific reason. And I think, and well, my observation is Beijing does not like people standing up for it, standing up against it. And it doesn't like governments standing up against it, particularly governments like Australia, the country with only 25 million people. They don't like seeing that. So that's something worth noting. You know, always look at how Beijing reacts to something and just think about, you know, why they're reacting that way. And it was interesting that Mr. Keating came out very quickly to condemn, or because I'm not suggesting he's doing this at the request of the Chinese, but I, I'm, he seems to be presenting very much the Chinese communist view in these matters. One of the, one of the uh, problems or one of the, the dangers to me seems to be the remainder of the current president's term. Will there be a temptation if they were going to move, if the communists were going to move on Taiwan, would they be seeing the current president as perhaps weak in this regard? Would they be, they would obviously be well informed about the information that is coming out in the House committees about the transactions carried on by the Biden family in relation to Chinese corporations. Would they see the current president is to an extent compromised and would they, if they were thinking of doing something fierce in relation to Taiwan, would there be a temptation for Xi to move during the remainder of the current president's term, do you think, uh, Daniel? Yeah, without obviously giving it a, a, a direct yes or no on it, I think the stars are certainly aligning on the Taiwan issue. Um, but I will mention as well at the end that there are opposing views to a Taiwan invasion. Uh, on, the, on, on, on the factors that suggest an invasion, certainly there is the anniversary of the Communist Party's takeover of China. Uh, I think that's nearing 75 years. And that's about the time that the Soviet Union had control over Russia. So it's a very symbolic sort of a time frame, and that's happening. You know that we're crossing that benchmark in the next two, one or two years. The other issue is the um, is Xi Jinping's term, uh, five years till 2027, I think. So there's about five. There's a five-year window where Xi has to reassert his authority, and Xi is obviously dealing with a lot of issues internally in China. Uh, the economy is tanking. There's a demographic problem. Uh, you know, there's not a lot. There's not a lot of young people. A lot more older people. There's a lot of emigration from China as well. So the the upper rungs of Chinese society are leaving the country, bringing with them their wealth, going to countries like the U.S., Australia, Canada, and the U.K. and Southeast Asia as well. So Xi Jinping has a lot on his mind, and within his framework, he may consider an invasion of Taiwan as as a way to galvanize the population. But on the other hand is there are a lot of voices that say that because of all these problems, the Chinese Communist Party may not have the strength to actually invade China, uh, invade Taiwan, sorry. Yes. Daniel, could you explain to us uh, the demographic problem of the People's Republic? What is that? Yeah, so essentially the, the main issue stems from the one-child policy. So you have Essentially, this policy has been run for close to maybe 30, 40 years now, and you have family trees that 
it might kind of look like this rather than this. So if you if you can imagine country of you know nearly a billion people, and all the family trees are now looking kind of like this, you're starting to run out of a lot of the younger people. So people around my age, you know, in their thirties, forties, or their twenties, this demographic is starting to shrink. Uh, and then the older people over 50, that demographic is getting larger and larger. So the state has to find ways to support older Chinese. And I can tell you under the communist system in China, their pension funds are very, very, very generous. So the, the communist system is the communist leaders, they, they have to think of ways of how we can keep, you know, supporting these older communist members. Um, but then their workforce is shrinking at the same time. So there, there was a stat, there's these constant stats where China puts out however many million university graduates per year, but only a very small percentage of them can actually find jobs. So the economy can't absorb all the graduates either. So this is all, you know, when you have a demographic problem, you end up having an economic problem. And when you have an economic problem, you have a social problem. So these things all flow onto one another. And this is actually what the Chinese communist leadership is dealing with. They're, they're looking at this and... They've been able to prop it up for years through foreign investment and infrastructure building, but that's since that window has closed because of COVID uh, in recent years. And obviously now a lot of companies are sort of pulling out of China due to fears of uh, a range of fears. So this is what's sitting in front of Xi. Uh, and some say that Xi might think that, well, a war on Taiwan might just be a way to galvanize the population and refocus the population's um, energy on, on something else rather than their own troubles. Do we see something of a parallel in Japan where you have uh, small families, not a number of a sufficient number of children to reproduce the population and no immigration, so that this leads to a decline in the total population, unlike Australia, where any deficiency is made up by immigration? Yeah, essentially, it's a similar issue. Um, and and funnily enough, in China, Chinese they they have released, they've opened up the one child policy now in the last few years, so you can have two children. But younger Chinese are reluctant to have an extra child now because cost of living is a problem. So wage rates aren't that high in China, but a lot of the foods, your basic grocery shopping is actually quite expensive, comparable to Australia. So, um, you know, there we I, I personally know of a few younger Chinese in their thirties thinking about having their second kid or even or, or their first kid, but they just don't want to do it. It's just, it's it's the money problem, but it's also the security problem. Uh, a lot of people know that it's not, it's not the nicest place to live when you get beyond the big shiny cities and the skyscrapers and the public transport advertising billboards. There's a lot of social problems now in China. Um, education is still an issue. Uh, so. This is essentially what happens when you try to, when you get a highly interventionist government over a society. Uh, I, I say to people that if you really want to toy with a wide, bigger welfare state, big government, and look at its consequences, China is the best example of what you can see, what you can get in 10 or 20 years. China is a country that the government has tried to control and monitor and manage uh, intrinsically for over 70 years. And what you're seeing now uh, what I've mentioned today is just the tip of the iceberg, but what you're seeing now is really the fruits of that labor. If, uh, as you say, young people are graduating from universities and they're not getting employment, doesn't that create a social problem? Doesn't that create unrest in the society? Yeah. Well, that's, um, 
there is a form of unrest that emerged just recently. It's called the Tangping uh, Zui. It means like the lying down uh, protest. So the idea is that they just lie down and they don't do anything. And, and it, it's, yeah, sorry. Yeah. And uh, they were holding up white pieces of paper. <laughs> Remember that? You, yeah. How can you be criticized for holding up a piece of paper? Because there's nothing, nothing on it, but it obviously was a symbol of, uh, of protest. Yeah, that was the protest against all the, the extensive zero COVID lockdowns. Mm. Uh, I think Chinese were having it up to, were really starting to get fed up with constantly being uh, confined to their homes. Uh, the other protest I was mentioning was the fact that across China, a lot of young people in their 20s, early 20s, have just simply decided not to pursue any sort of job, just to get by in life, not to pursue setting up a family, uh, not to buy a house. And this is in the millions. And this, this lying down protest has infuriated the communist leadership because they're saying young people need to strive, need to work hard. But the problem is a lot of the younger people in China now, they see no future. When confronted with all these challenges in front of them, they've decided simply just to give up, wave the white flag. I'll just make enough to get by on life and just live the rest of my days out. Do you, do you think that the, uh, the propaganda of the regime persuades people that uh, China is right on many of these issues, for example, in relation to Taiwan? Oh, I think on certain issues, there's always a certain population that will always believe in the communist uh, propaganda or rhetoric because you have to remember it's, it's, in, it's, it's all encompassing. So your, all your, your TV, radio, newspaper and, and online, WeChat, it's the communist voice that is actually the loudest. So here and there, people are going to absorb what's being said. But at the same time, a lot of Chinese people understand that, you know, there's a lot more to what's being said. They can see the problems intrinsically. They know that society is not going that well, uh, but they play along with the game, especially those working in the, the communist leadership or within the communist party ranks. They just have to play along uh, until the final days, I guess. I was uh, getting back to Taiwan. I was a little surprised to see the attitude of some of the Kuomintang, the old nationalists. For example, I think one of the leaders has recently visited uh, China and appears to be trying to reach out to the, uh, the communist leadership. Is, is that what is happening? Is the, is the Kuomintang taking a, poor, a more pro-mainland view? Yeah, the Kuomintang, the old Nationalist Party, which ironically lost the war in China to the Communist Party and fled to Taiwan, they've now become, they're now more pro-Beijing. So President, former President Ma Ying-jeou, it's no surprise that he's gone to China to sort of, because he believes that he can discuss and negotiate a fair outcome. It's actually no different to some of the views of certain leaders in Australia who believe that more discussion can actually make things better. Um, whether or not that goes well, I, I, it's, it's still hard to say, but Taiwan certainly isn't, uh, they're not united on this issue. Uh, China is a very, it's, it's very divisive in, in Taiwan. It's split between the greens and the blues over there. Uh, and there's a lot of people who still hold a lot of resentment towards the Communist Party. Uh, and uh, the attitude in, uh on Taiwan, would the, the basic attitude still be fear of uh, a takeover by the communists, particularly after what they saw in relation to Hong Kong? Hong Kong was supposed to be one country, two systems. 
I'm, I'm told that the second system has completely disappeared now, that uh, it is now an intrinsic part of uh, China and the, the foreigners have moved out, the big banks and so on have tended to go to Singapore because it's being run as an intrinsic part of China. There's no second system maintained there. Would that, that if, if that's correct, would that be causing worries in Taiwan as to that idea of uh, there being one country and two systems? I think it's in this touches on an earlier point. I think that I've spoken to some Taiwanese who are actually quite skeptical of an invasion, believe it or not. Uh, they're on the front line, but they actually think that there's they're actually very skeptical that Beijing could muster the strength to actually go and attack their country. So um, and I think the other day, a person from Hong Kong, he made this comment to me, which I think was quite interesting. He said it would be good if the Communist Party invaded Taiwan because that would spell the end of the Communist Party. So it's quite interesting. Those uh, ethnic Chinese, they, couldn't, they, they can't see beyond the fact that Beijing is dealing with, like all those issues I've mentioned, economic, demographic, social problems. Um, and, they and they don't think Beijing can get beyond that to muster up the strength to go and attack uh, another country. And mind you, uh, attacking Taiwan is no cakewalk. There is, there is a very, you know, there's a lot more to it than doing what they did to Hong Kong. What would you expect the Americans to do if there were an, a real invasion of Taiwan? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. I think the US at this point, there is a likelihood they will defend Taiwan. Uh, how far that defense goes uh, remains to be seen. There's certainly a lot of wargaming occurring at the moment in uh, examining all the different factors. How do we defend against a Beijing invasion? Uh, the, and the, the good thing is, I, well, not the good thing, but the more positive aspect is the fact that I've heard that Beijing cannot really sustain a campaign for too long if it decided to invade Taiwan. Uh, it, could, it probably has a, a one-month window to do what it can before its forces are spent and the attrition starts to wear down the Chinese forces. So you have to remember, although Chinese, China's military is big on paper, uh, budget is big as well, there's a, a lot of other issues. Again, you're looking at a, a military force that hasn't really been tested in real world conflicts. You're looking at a uh, you know personnel, which someone told me the other day, you know, the Chinese military is really, <laughs> is really where you go when you don't have anywhere else to go in life. <laughs> so the Chinese military, uh, it, it has an HR issue as well. It's getting a lot of recruits um, from parts of the world, uh, well, parts of China that really don't want to be there. It's not really a career path like in compared to Australia or the United States. So this is the sort of military that Beijing has mustered together. And can that actually survive a conflict with a, a military like the US combined with Japan, Korea or Australia? I think that question remains to be determined. And even if the West of the United States did not militarily resist an invasion, it would almost be unavoidable for the West to impose serious sanctions on China if China were to invade Taiwan. I, I, I can't imagine that the West wouldn't impose very serious sanctions. And uh, could, could China last for long? Could the Chinese economy cope with the imposition of sanctions? We would suffer, of course, 
particularly, but I think our governments would still feel that they would have to go along with a Western move to impose sanctions. Well, I think there, there's no choice. Um, I think, like, if you look at the damage, the, the, the after effects of the Ukraine war uh, around the world, I think uh, such an event in Taiwan, you could probably multiply that factor by two or three times. The, the, the amount of trade that goes through those straits, th those are some of the busiest shipping lanes in the world mm. uh, around the South China Sea and Taiwan. The, the, the disruption would be nothing compared to uh, what happened to Ukraine. So I think the, the, the Western nations really, they, they, there is no choice but to act because uh, the amount of disruption that's going to come through a conflict in Taiwan is going to be quite, uh, quite monumental. It seems a fact that uh, under the administration of President Trump, hostile powers seem to be unwilling to take him on. Perhaps it was they didn't know what he was going to do, but he, he seemed to be able to impose a restraint on all of the hostile powers, Moscow, Beijing, Tehran. They all seem to be wary, even, even North Korea, they all seem to be wary of him. There is a possibility, is there not, with uh, he's going to campaign. I suspect he will probably get the Republican nomination. And uh, if he were to win the presidency, they would be, there would be worries, I would think, again, by hostile countries, because, again, they would not know what his reaction would be. Is, is that a reasonable assessment, do you think? Yeah, I think that if there was credit to be given to the Trump administration, it's the fact that they've understood how the world works in some ways. It's the world is divided between developed nations and undeveloped developing nations. And developing nations look at the world through a different lens compared to developed nations. We in, in countries like Australia, we think negotiation and dialogue can resolve many of our issues. And to be fair, it can work between like for like, but when dealing with regimes like North Korea, like China, like Iran, or even in the Middle East, uh, the value systems are different. And I think the, the Trump administration actually understood that, and hence why how how the Trump administration ended up with the Abraham Accords, uh, managing to get some semblance of peace in the Middle East after how many years of conflict. That seems to have eroded now with Iran, with Saudi Arabia siding with with China recently. Um, but it's really uh, an, an issue with the foreign policy um, establishment. So the, the Trump administration had a very different outlook on the world. Uh, the current administration seems to be following that of the previous one, Obama, uh, which was to treat the world like as they were, like it all had the same values. But in reality, when you get to places like Asia, Africa, Middle East, people look at the world differently. Yes. They value different things. Countries like Asia, they value strength. Uh, strength is actually uh, strength of your military, strength of your nation. Uh, that is actually one of the key factors that sways um, leaders in those parts of the world. I agree with you about similar countries, and you tend to think with countries like the United States or New Zealand, Britain, European countries, that you can achieve a lot through negotiations and discussions. But when, uh, when one thinks of history, history before I was born even, uh, and if you go back to the First World War, just, just reflecting on the First World War, do you find that 
it extraordinary that that could have developed the disputes which arose, which were the immediate causes of the war and the, the frictions which were existing between the powers, that that could have led to such a terrible, terrible international conflict, the First World War. Do you find that on reflection, an extraordinary thing with countries which are pretty similar uh, Germany under the Kaiser was certainly not Germany under the Hit under Hitler. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think it, it speaks to. Uh, well, obviously, World War One was a very different time to the foreign policy issues we're we're facing today. There's probably um, differences in how people handled those relationships. Um, perhaps relationships could be had. I think that the key thing is also to play the cards that you're dealt. That's actually one of the things that we, that could be observed in the last 20 years of foreign policy is like, and that's what the Trump administration actually did in the Middle East. They played the cards they were dealt. They didn't look at the countries like they, they imagined them to be. They looked at them in what they actually were doing. And in, in the Middle East, the Trump administration identified Iran as a major aggressor mm. and found that all, most other Middle Eastern countries actually were suing for peace. They were sick of fighting with Israel. And so he just worked on that. His administration just worked on that. Whereas the Obama administration kind of treated Iran like any other country and and looked on it as a, on an even keel with, other, with Israel. And that just prolonged conflict, uh, or I should say Palestine and Israel, they, they kind of replaced Iran with Palestine. You know, they, Trump saw Palestine as the aggressor, whereas um, the Obama administration saw Palestine as uh, as an equal party to be negotiated with uh, with Israel. And that's just prolonged negotiations to, to no end. So I think that's how we have to sort of see the world. We have to understand some parties are there to be aggressive. Some parties are there to, who just want the most for their people. Um, and that can very much be applied to the Communist Party as well in China. Uh, what are they really looking to do? You know, remove the blinkers from your eyes and just have a look at what they're doing, what their goals are, and, you know, move the chess pieces accordingly. I, I would think that eventually they will go the way of the Soviet Communist Party. I was surprised that the Soviet Communist Party collapsed as early as it did. I thought it would go on longer, but when it happened, it seemed to be the obvious thing that would happen because of uh, Reagan's policies. Reagan was so strong in uh, building up the defences of the United States, the Soviet Union could never keep up with him and uh, really destroyed itself trying to catch up with him. Do you think a similar thing might happen in relation to the PRC? You've pointed to the economic problems, the demographic problems, and the fact that uh, the experience of war may not be as strong as the, some, some suggest. Do you think that the, the, there might be a similar situation in relation to China, that uh, the Chinese government is not as strong as we think it is? Uh, certainly, I think there's um, like that, that issue you just mentioned when Biden just um, a few months ago uh, passed a law to prevent U.S. experts from working in China uh, who are involved in sensitive industries. That actually would cut a lot of jobs from Chinese, the Chinese industry. Uh, the Beijing survives, if I might put it bluntly, Beijing survives on the teat of the United States. 
effectively. It is U.S. industry, uh, U.S. investment, Wall Street that is actually propping up the Chinese economy. If U.S. institutions were willing to pull that out and remove that from Beijing, the regime would find it very difficult to last. It would it would not have much left to keep it standing. But it's because of 20 years of globalization. And when we say globalization, what really happened was most of our industries went to China. That's actually what it was. It should be Chinaization or something. So essentially, the world has been keeping the communist regime going for the last 20 to 30 years. And if that were to reverse, uh, it could spell a bit of danger for the regime. So it suited the industrialists of the West to move their manufacturing to China for the cheaper labor. Is that what uh, your conclusion is? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, I just I just did an interview today. Like I think most Western countries, you know, they they they're concerned about the lack of local manufacturing. I interviewed a um, a small business uh, in Brisbane who had to close down because of inflation, electricity prices, all sorts of things. And he said, you know, Daniel, we don't manufacture a single pancake in Australia. <laughs> and we don't manufacture any waffles in Australia. We import around $67 million of waffles every year, $380 million of ingredients to make pancakes. And he's just saying, I don't understand how a war in Ukraine can make the prices of my pancakes go up by 700%. Uh, perhaps we might finish on this question. Uh, uh, I, I find it extraordinary that uh, our politicians seem to be doing something which is really favouring the communists r rather than looking after our interests. As your, you interviewed, the, the, your interview, I think, probably was coming to the same conclusion. Do you find that extraordinary too? Yeah, I think it's, um, and, and it takes leadership to overturn that. And uh, it takes leadership to reverse a 20, 30 year slide towards globalization where we've sent all our manu Australia's manufacturing overseas to other countries. Uh, I think the one of the most, most people don't know this, I think Australia played a very big role in helping Beijing build its aircraft carriers. We, um, we sent the HMAS uh, Melbourne to them, which was one of Australia's last aircraft carriers. And they, um, they promised us they wouldn't use it for their own military research uh they did and um, <laughs> you know it, it helped it helped uh beijing in great leaps and bounds but to reverse the globalization effort uh takes a lot of leadership it is it's not an easy thing to do and it will it will rankle a few people uh but i guess the country has to make those decisions on whether or not it's going forward well daniel you've uh, you've really You've really taught me a lot, and uh, I think the information and uh, the views you have have been very useful. I would like to thank you very much for your participation in the interview today. I'm sure, or I hope, there will be others when you will be available. Uh, this is Save the Nation on ADH-TV, and I'm David Flint, and uh, until next time.